Welcome, Building Brands listeners. For our 20th episode, yes, we've made it to 20 episodes. I'm joined by Christopher Lyon, president at Turnersall Siteworks. Turnersall has been known as the company at the intersection of landscape and architecture, but also their team works with designers and contractors across the country, helping to inspire them to dream big and work with their teams to build big. In this episode, Christopher talks about how Turnersall leveraged growth through a distinct technology that met a budding need in the outdoor market and expanded upon that to reshape how architects, designers, and contractors approached outdoor spaces. From there, he talks about Turnersall's path to growth, differentiation in the market, and becoming a go-to partner. Enjoy the episode. If you're an owner or marketer in the building materials, manufacturing, distribution, or contracting spaces looking to set up your brand for success now and in the future, this is the podcast for you. On this show, we talk about brand and market strategies used in the real world that grow companies and truly connect with consumer audiences. So sit back, listen in, and let's get to it. Okay, welcome Christopher Lyon, president of Turnisall Siteworks. Thanks for coming on. Tim, I'm glad to be here today. Really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you about the uh, topics you've got suggested for us. Awesome. It's going to be a good conversation. Before we get into that conversation, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you do at Turnisall, and uh, sort of how you got started in the landscaping, site solutions, building materials market. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, again, my name is Christopher Lyon, and I'm the president of Turnisall Siteworks. Uh, I've been doing it now for just about 26 years, but I had absolutely no intention of getting into the building materials business in the very beginning. I was actually an industrial OEM salesperson and decided to go back to grad school and got out in the middle of a recession and couldn't find a job. So, uh, a friend actually referred me to a little tiny company not too far from me that made self-watering flower pots. And he said, oh, it's a really cool technology. You should check this out. And I was the guy who couldn't keep a houseplant alive to save my soul. So I thought, eh, maybe, I'm that guy is, too. Eh, maybe I'm that's not- <laughs> interesting, right? It's like, okay. So I went and talked to the owner of the company and he just he was looking for somebody to run the business, but I thought, you know, I didn't really want to run a tiny business for him. So I put together some friends and family money and we actually bought the business. And being the young smart guy I was, you know, they were mostly at that time in the commercial landscape business, selling to commercial landscapers. But I knew better than them. I said, I'm gonna go out and sell it retail because we're gonna make some big bucks in retail. I'm going to work it for about five years, flip it and go. So that was, uh, that was the idea. And, and honestly, I was, we were everywhere. We tried Home Depot. We tried local garden centers. I was on Home Shopping Network and QVC. I mean, we, we did everything to get these planters out in the marketplace because the technology really is, uh, you know, for a guy who, who can't take care of plants, the technology is nothing <laughs> short of miraculous. So it didn't work. Plain flat out, it didn't work. A year later, I had to regroup. We'd gone through a lot of the money and say, what are we going to do now? And realized that the technology was still interesting, but the but the way it was presented as a little self-watering flower pot was not ever going to really make it. So what we did is we turned to back to the commercial marketplace and started just asking our customers, what is it that you want? And looked at what some of the some of our competition was doing. And we realized that the core to what we were selling was the irrigation piece, not so much the plastic pot. People didn't want to buy plastic pots. They wanted to buy the irrigation piece that we were selling. So we created 
the irrigation component that would drop into anybody else's plastic containers or anybody else's containers for that matter. And then started figuring out how to, how to scale this, how to make it bigger, how to make it work for a larger marketplace. And it took a while. It took about 10 years to really get established, to get the product out uh, in front of the specification channel, work with landscape architects, uh, selling to landscape contractors and really understand the market better. And after about 10 years, we were there. We were established. The product was selling pretty well, uh, mostly through the specification channel. And we really listened to landscape architects. And that's then when I started looking around and said, okay, what more is there? You know, I'd been doing this for 10 years. The business wasn't very big. We were a handful of people in manufacturing in Northern California. And at that point was sort of that moment that you look around and say, now what? Well, what we did have, and I, I'm a sales guy from, from way back. And so what I did is I started listening to our customers, listening to our customers talk about what was going on in the marketplace, where they thought we had opportunities, and asking them, you know, why are you specifying these self-watering irrigation systems in your products? And what came back out of the discussions was that the that the business was changing. And in fact, where we were being specified frequently was on rooftop applications. And and about that time, this was probably in the early 2000s or so, waterproofing technologies was changing in the building material sector. The style, that uh, the, the way that people were waterproofing their rooftops uh, was going towards uh, monolithic membranes. They were going away from the trip typic- typical fluid-applied asphaltic products. And what that meant was there was no more casting of CMU walls on roofs. There was no, they weren't going to be building in place planters anymore, as it were. And that building in place planters, they were usually traditionally irrigated and the waterproofing would fail and go all over the, all over the penthouse, the most expensive uh, apartment in the whole building. So the architects were taking our self-contained irrigation systems and putting there so they didn't have to run irrigation. And what they kept asking us was, do you, know, do you guys know any lightweight container manufacturers? Because the only thing we can buy out here is concrete and concrete's really heavy. And the engineer has to reinforce the roof of the building. And the reality is that we'd really like to find something lightweight. Well, you know, good marketer and sales guy that I am, I listened and I said, light bulb went off and said, well, maybe there's an opportunity here because there's not very much in this space. We were already selling the the uh, the irrigation component to these same landscape architects. So we went out and about 2004, we developed a line of lightweight fiberglass pots and planters. And being that I'd been in the market for over 10 years at that point in time, I knew pretty well the way that landscape architects were going to be designing these roof spaces. They needed matching products and different shapes and sizes, and they need large sizes and those kinds of things. So we introduced a line of these uh, lightweight pots and planters and that's when the business changed. That the uh, the dirty little secret of selling these irrigation systems was it could never cost more than about a third of the cost of the pot itself. So the real money was in the planter, but nobody really wanted to talk about the planter. They just wanted they, they needed the irrigation system. So we were adding a it, you know we were working it backwards. We were selling hamburgers with the fries. We were selling fries, <laughs> and we said let's start making hamburgers too. So getting into the lightweight uh, pots and planters was really an, an opportunity for us that uh, that got us on our way. And the next thing that happened in this was 
uh, again, a revelation that wasn't necessarily something that we were so smart, we figured it out. It was the market telling us we started making a couple rectangular products. And that is, you know, maybe I call it uh, four feet, five feet, six feet long rectangles. And they weren't very big, maybe 18 inches, 24 inches high, something like that. And the architects just kept specifying it over and over and over again. And it took us a while to really understand why this was becoming our best-selling product. And it was because instead of building these planters and these and essentially lining walls and, and creating spaces using using precast, you know, using a build-in-place planter, they were putting our fiberglass pots in place of these precast walls. Excuse me, the cast in place walls. And every time we'd come out with a larger size, it would become our most popular size. So suddenly 24 by 24 and then 30 by 30. And now we make things up to 10 feet long, 48 inches wide, 48 inches tall. And the specifiers use it to configure spaces on roof gardens. A lot of times there's issues with uh, with the, the amount of people that they're allowed to have in the middle of a roof garden. That's oftentimes a big issue. They use these these planters then to soften the space. They use the, the landscape to, to control people. They control access and egress and all kinds of different things. So it got us on our way. So starting about 2004, step by step, we continued to increase the line, listening to our customers and asking them, you know, not even so much asking them, but offering one piece at a time and it would sell better. And eventually we started figuring out this is where the market's going. So while we were following our customer at the same time, we were helping them get to a place that they couldn't get with any other manufacturer. Nobody else was doing what we were doing. And it gave us the momentum to become sort of the leading manufacturer in the space. Cool. Is there a, a project that you like telling people about that kind of showcases the, the use of this? I mean, you guys do national work, right? You're all over the country. We do national work today all over the country. You know, what's become kind of our our go-to projects are about 40% of our work is in multifamily construction. Mm. So while you may not see one specific special location that's on this roof garden, what you do is you see them everywhere. And because what ended up happening was that that the about this time in about the mid 2000s there was this realization in the development community the developers community that they were missing out on a pretty good amount of square footage on every building that they were building because there was a roof that nobody used for anything and by putting a little bit of money into it suddenly they had an outdoor space that the that it was became very very valuable to the to either the tenants or the owners in the condo that people really really were excited about this outdoor space so they might put a dog run or a kitchen area or a sun sunning area and and this became not only in the multifamily residential it, well i mean first of all you think about it Way back when, they used to sell apartments and uh, condos based on having, you know, stainless steel appliances and granite countertops. And then everybody had stainless steel counter appliances and granite countertops. So they mm -hmm. had to look at a new way of differentiating. And the the rooftop amenity space truly became the measure of differentiation between these different projects. And you know, we joke about it today. We said we were kind of like the arms dealers selling to all the different developers in their competition with one another. We would sell them planters and soften their spaces and and truly make the make the spaces special. So while there isn't necessarily one 
very special thing. You can see them everywhere now in almost any uh, any large urban area and now really moving into the secondary markets where where they start to see the values of these, these uh, urban infill projects and these multifamily locations going in. The roof amenity space has become an absolute must in selling or renting the the, uh, the building. Are you primarily trying to bring in the architects to spec these? Or are you trying to drive demand from the, the building owners that say, like, we need to maximize our space and make the building stand out and it goes through the architects? Who's like, or is it, I mean, the, the, the easy answer could be it's both, but who's the primary target to bring into your world to, to get these into, into the, the build specs? Well, that's that's a great question, and it and it really goes back to the heart of how we developed as a as a company in terms of the marketing and the work that we did, and that is that we focused ninety nine point nine percent of our effort in the beginning on the specification community. We we were one of the very first. We came out of an industry that was extremely small and fragmented, and we were small and we were fragmented at the time. We were still <laughs> figuring things out. So. But what we did do is that we invested in a sales channel. We invested in our own salespeople. And that was something that for anybody else who was in that kind of business with us, you know, again, really small companies, they were using independent reps. They were out there trying to figure out some way to reach out to the specifiers. And we said, now we're going to actually hire our own salespeople and we're going to keep get you in the field and we're going to have you call on landscape architects and architects. And that's all you're going to do is talk to them. So our marketing was essentially carried office to office to office by our sales team. So the sales team doubled as a marketing team, essentially going out and telling the story, explaining what we were doing and and listening to the customer and then bringing that feedback back to us as a manufacturer. Uh, So we really focused very heavily on the specifier. And it's, it's almost funny in the beginning, we didn't know we didn't know where the products would go. We didn't see the projects going on. We knew that the specifier specified it somewhere. And it turns out in the long haul, a lot of it became multifamily. Some of it was hospitality. We do a lot of institutional work. You know, you might see a healing garden on a hospital, those kinds of things. But uh, over over time, you know, well more than 50% of our work's on, on the roof. And almost all of it went into the specification community. But that was our... That was really the means for us to to promote the product, communicate, and to get onto those jobs. We didn't know the developers, and we also figured the problem with a developer is unless you get to one of the really, really big ones, they only develop a couple buildings. They might develop mm-hmm. one or two buildings. You got to make that sale over and over again. Like I said, I'm a sales guy from way back, and I knew if you got a specifier to specify you the first time and you did it right and you took care of them and made sure their job was a success – pretty likely that they'd use you over and over and over again, which allowed you to make that one call and then take care of the customer, but then go on to the next specifier. And it made your sales team much more efficient. And that was a big part of how we continued to promote the product was by taking good care of our specifiers, making sure the jobs were successful and and really promoting the use of this kind of technology on the roof. Would you say that through that process, you helped create the demand or was the demand there and you sort of stumbled into it and found the right formula to put up against it to grow? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the point was we we did a little bit of both. And in the beginning, we provided the product where I heard that there was some sort of demand. But by continuing to push the envelope, 
we continued to create opportunities for architects and, and designers to do more on these spaces. So the build out of these spaces became you know, I, I don't want to take credit for it, but we enhanced the capabilities of the designers to put more sophisticated uh, products onto the roof. What we started then doing is once we've had, we have a very robust selection of different products out there, we started listening and asking them, what else do you want in this product? And we realized there were accessory components that they wanted. So we started doing trellis panels that would be connected to planters so that you could use privacy screens. And then we then started doing the, then literally privacy screens made out of uh, laser cut steel. And, uh, we put in cast in place light pockets so that, you know, the architects were complaining that they would put our planter in place along a wall and then they would have to put a bollard in front of it with a light on there because that was the egress lighting. And so we said, we can just cast in a light pocket right in the side of all of that planter. And then you can put your light, your light fixture right in there and you have the egress lighting and you don't have to put the bollard in place or, uh, now, some of the more recent developments, we've been doing a lot of uh, bioretention work. And that is the when you hear about bioswales and getting water filtered before it goes into the it goes out to the uh, environment, the designers are being pushed to to actually integrate this onto the structure. So you need a, a drainage planter kind of going on structure and you need to make a special building for that. And it's a it's quite a unique uh, a unique product that we've been manufacturing. And it's something that we've been listening to our clients. They ask for it. We figure out how to do that. And at the same time, we're pushing the envelope a little bit because maybe a couple guys have asked for it, but not everybody has. So they didn't know they needed it until they saw that we offered it. A couple of things there. The sales and marketing do run side by side very, very closely. They do have very fringe things that they can only accomplish on their own individually with their specialized skill sets, but they do run very close together. There's another, there's a third element to this, which is the company needs to be able to react to what sales and marketing are getting back from the, the consumer saying, this is where you need to go. If the company doesn't act, you get stale, but it also gives the sales and marketing another place to go with conversations and and listening to customers and getting them what they need, which is kind of that innovation element too, which factors into some of this. Well, about 20 to 25% of our work is custom. And we joke mm -hmm. about it because we say there isn't a architect born that wants to design the same building twice. So you end up with a lot of unique elements. You end up with a lot of things that people bring to you and say, can you do this? So the, so the question is then, well, okay, if they want this, does someone else want it? And it's understanding the marketplace, listening to your sales team. You know, we, we have guys out there. There's a whole team of our regional sales managers who are making pre-COVID days, 10 sales calls a week. And they were in 10 landscapes to keep architectural or architectural offices. And this is a whole team of doing this. You get a lot of feedback from the field. So one of the key components for us was then not only taking this, this fiberglass piece, this lightweight fiberglass piece that we started, but then expanding and being able to do more and listen to our customers to be able to go further. So uh, in about in 2015, uh, we, we acquired a small manufacturer of uh, lightweight concrete, GFRC. And this is a, ca a casting facility down in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, with a partner facility over the border in El Paso, Texas. And that's become a key manufacturing point for us now, where we're doing both fiberglass and lightweight concrete out of that facility and shipping it around the country. And it gives us a lot more capabilities, not only on structure, but also 
on the sidewalks, off structure, unique elements. A real special project that we did last year combined not only that facility out of El Paso, but a manufacturing plant we bought up in uh, Washington, Site Furnishings Manufacturer, which was essentially a large metal and wood shop in 2017. Just two years ago, we were able to do the LaGuardia Terminal B project, and that was a really unique, special design uh, done by a, a wonderful landscape architect out of uh, out of New York. And they wanted to recreate pocket parks within the LaGuardia Airport Terminal, but the contractor had sort of left this to, to, to the very end and. We said to them, you know, we looked at the job a couple of times and they finally came back around and said, we really need you to do this. So we were able to combine custom GFRC manufacturing, doing a unique technology where we were uh, custom cutting the molds as we went and building in place metal benches that went on top of the whole thing and did what was we thought was going to be about eight months worth of work in about four months because the contractor would call me periodically and tell me, Governor Cuomo is breathing down our neck to get this thing mm-hmm. open, and you guys are the ones who really have to make it happen. So it was it's a, it was a wonderful installation, and it's, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful place. The new LaGuardia Terminal is really dynamite, and they're doing some wonderful things out there. And we've been part of not only that job, uh, the contractor was was really thought we did such a great job. They brought us on to Terminal A. Now we're doing the head house next year. One of the contractors associated that called us up and said, hey, they're redoing JFK. Can you get involved in that too? So we think we must be doing a pretty good job, not only of, of really pushing the envelope with some of the products that we manufacture in these custom site solutions, but also really helping the customer to be a success. What do you think the main benefits of the architects and designers are? I mean, you're, you're helping them do their jobs too, right? You're not just giving them an awesome product and helping them get it into the contractor's hands and make it easy to install. Like, what, What's also benefiting them and how you're approaching the work with them and what they get out of it? Well, that is actually one thing that I learned really early on in dealing with uh, with the specify- specification community. And that was if they had to design something from scratch, that took a lot of their time. So if they mm-hmm. had to design that call it a uh, the cast in place wall, they had to they had to write the specs for it, they had to design it, they had to make sure and they would usually over engineer it to make sure it didn't fail because they didn't know what was going to go in in the field. Well, as a manufacturer who would bring in a pre-completed specification and a design, it took them a fraction of the time to put the same product in the same location. So we were essentially allowing the the architect or the specifier to do the same amount of work with less time. So for them, people who build time, they were probably saving time that they were able to somewhat build the developer for or get on the job. And so it was an easier process for them. Now, what we've learned over time and what's really driving some of our business today is the fact that the this works for the contractor as well. The Whether it's a general contractor or a landscape contractor, building something in the field is time-consuming. Oftentimes, it's involving union labor. It's coordinating with other trades. There are a lot of issues with building stuff in the field. So it's actually easier to have them build something in a factory, and even if it's it's partially assembled, bring it out onto site and assemble it in place so that there's much less time spent actually on the job site itself. 
The product's usually made in a, it's more efficient because that's all we do, for example, in the factory. So there's less material wasted. Uh, we have better quality control. We have guys who do this every day, as opposed to a landscape contractor trying to build a wall or somebody with, that's not really all that good at this. We're doing it every day. And our team is really quite expert at doing the work that we do. So it's much more efficient, this offsite construction has been driving it. So between the specifier, who's able to save time by specifying a pre-manufactured product or a pre-designed product, and the contractor who doesn't have to build it in the field, it's a win-win all the way around. And we see this today really overall in the in the uh, the construction community that offsite manufacturing is is really becoming a trend that I think is is the future of the construction industry. People don't want to have to build something on site. They want to make it on offsite somewhere else and bring it on site. Now, most of the work that you hear about are the big companies doing full buildings and wall panels mm-hmm. and cassettes and all that kind of thing. Well, we're we're focusing on a very narrow narrow set of opportunities, and that is in the landscape and the site solutions process. So we're kind of working that seam. We're mining a seam, continuing to work down, knowing our customer, understanding the opportunities, looking at the materials, and because we're a vertically integrated manufacturer in lightweight fiberglass, lightweight concrete, metal. Uh, that's aluminum and weathering steel and wood. We really ha- can run the gamut of different kinds of site construction that someone would want to do on site. We can do it all off site. And we see our business being driven amazingly right now just by that. So, what started out, you know, now, now 15 years ago in lightweight fiberglass is being driven not just through fiberglass, but through metal, through wood, through all kinds of different, through con- the concrete, all kinds of different materials. But it's still kind of that same story. We're building it in a factory and the factory is now where we started off in one little, little small area in Northern California. Now we have plants in Washington, Northern California, and down in Texas and over the border in Mexico they are now producing products that go all across the country and are being used by designers and contractors. And for each one of us, it's a win. We get bigger. We're continuing to grow and continuing to develop the GC or the landscape contractor, saves money, makes it look better. The designer knows that he's getting something. He's saved a little time in the drawing and he has a lot more, excuse me, he or she knows that they have more confidence in the fact that the product that they're going to get out there is a Turnisol product. And the one thing that we commit to our customers over and over again is successful starts sites start with us. We we will make sure that project project is a success, and that drives everything that we do. So it's been a big part of our marketing push here recently. Yeah, and even with all of that growth, what you've done is you've still focused on the soft space landscaping pieces of building product products or projects, which means like. That gives you the ability to go and say, we are the best at this portion of a building build and the best at helping you execute that successful finished product. Like, How has that helped focus your messaging and, and that sales conversation too? Even the initial approach along with the, the resale and relationship building aspect of it. You know, that that's actually really interesting. And this happened kind of early on in, in the business as well, is that we were getting good at making fiberglass. And we were specified into a large project out in New York. And uh, the general contractor approached us and said, hey, you know, I got a guy here who's who's great. And he's going to do it for 25% less than you are. And and we asked him, he said, well, that's great. Has he ever made a planner before? It's like, he's making shower pans. 
He's making shower pants. He's making, he's making receptacles. He's making, he might be making, you know, tanks. He does, does he know what it really takes? You know, when we're making a, a fiberglass pot, it's an eighth of an inch wall thickness typically. And we're expected to hold about two tons of soil. And that can't bow. As I say, do you trust your local contractor who doesn't really know this to do that? We, you know, when we have fiberglass, we can make anything with fiberglass, right? Guys make, guys make truck parts. They make, uh, the, they, they make, uh, turbines for, you know, for these, these wind generator turbines. You can make anything out of fiberglass. It's a wonderful material. We only make one thing. And we make it really, really well. And we've led the industry in doing that. And now that as we've continued to expand into different materials, what we found, for example, with metal, and and we walked into this three years ago, manufacturing metal planters for the first time, understanding the market, looking at how we would approach doing things in metal. And we said, here's the product that we sell. And we looked at what the specifiers were already doing out there. And they were over-engineering everything because they didn't work with the material every day. So they might take, make a planter out of three-eighths inch thick steel plate because they knew if they made it out of three-eighths inch thick steel plate, it wouldn't bend. But we said, well, you could do this out of 12 gauge and you put some real structural reinforcement in the walls and you can lighten up the product. You make it a better product. You use less, use less material and it costs less. But they didn't know that because they don't design planters every day. So that's what we, you know, we have, we have eight engineers who sit there and do nothing but go through drawing planters and, and site, site, site solutions every day. These are the guys who understand how to make this the most efficiently and be able to do that. And as we've continued to tell that story, it really has resonated with the, uh, with the specifiers. And that's one thing in terms of my marketing my marketing history with the company is for a long time, I was the only marketing guy we had and probably wasn't that great of one at that. But I knew a good story when I heard one. I understood what kind of a story would resonate with the specifier. What kind of a story is going to resonate with the contractor? I'm a salesperson. That's what you do. You tell stories, you talk mm-hmm. about things, and that's what connects you to that person and what allows them to understand what it is that you can do for them and how you can do that. And so the story of this offsite construction and being the expert has always really resonated and We've been able to back it up with the product of the delivery and the relationships over the years that have only reinforced that, that people really respect and trust us. They know these guys are the top of the market in our game. We have, we've developed lots there. Well, we haven't, there's a lot of competition that's developed over the, over the last, you know, last five, seven years in our market space. And it's really because we paved the way out there and people still recognize Turnosols at the top of the game. They are the guys who you want to go to for this stuff. And yeah, there's probably somebody cheaper who could do it. And, and some of our competitors we love, they're very, they do great job in their work and they're, you know, following right along with us. You know, they're coming along in the market space too. But I think that we've been able to continue pushing the envelope out and expanding what was probably a really tiny seam in the beginning, really, really tiny niche in the beginning and continuing to push it and push it and push it. And it's been able to, to grow to being something that almost every landscape contractor thinks about. And frequently now we get GCs who recognize that this is something they have to worry about and can be considering about because it's on just about every project they see. You're also expanding the product lines too. So you have, it's a very specific type of project that you do and product that you produce. It's a very specific market that you're working in. You're expanding that seam rather than finding four or five other seams to grow. You're actually creating this, you're making the seam bigger itself through introducing new products, which gives your salespeople 
the excuse to go back and keep the conversations open with their existing accounts. And like you said, you have specifiers or or developers even where they say, yeah, you know, that's what uh, so-and-so did that 40 by 40 one. Well, Turnersall just came out with the 50 by 50. So I want the bigger one. It might like it's <laughs> I need the next thing. And, and that sort of keeps that's your next area of growth to grow the existing business, but also you know, pull more people into your world. Well, it, it started with planters, but uh, today, you know, planters are still, a, a, you know, they're still the, more than 50% of our business, but we do so much in terms of uh, wood benching and custom unique benches. We've done green walls over the years. We do drainage products, anything that's on that, in that space used by that customer. Again, it has everything to do with the customer and less to do with who we are. One of the things that I've always said to this company is always say yes, guys. Always say yes. Specifier asks you for something. Don't say no. The opportunities are forward. You've got to lean into it. You have to say yes and then figure out how to do it. And that's what we've done for 20, what I've been doing now for 26 years. And you have to have your finger on the pulse of the market too. Like offsite construction and modular builds are becoming a consistent topic on this podcast. And they're obviously a consistent topic in the market itself. And if you're able to do that through acquisitions, partnerships, whatever it might be, that's just one of those extra value adds. Otherwise, if you don't have the story of expertise to go up against just someone else that can use the material, if you can't make the specifier's life easier, if you can't make the GC's life easier, it will come down to this person is 25% less expensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's no way to position your business. It's no way to differentiate yourself in the market. It's no way to set your sales team up for success either. And and we've we've worked very hard. Uh, you know, like I said, in the beginning, we spent all of our time with the specification community. And the market has been changing. We've seen it change. And as this business has gone from being, oh, I need a planter on this job to, well, what are you going to use for planters? And it's become not just a little business, but it's a bigger business. And it's now a market, as it were. Other people in there, we've had to really pivot to be to develop stronger relationships with our contractors and where we probably and I will admit it we probably took them for granted for the first 10 years of doing this and they'll tell you that too oh turn us all they just take us for granted now we realize the value that we that we can provide to them but also the value they can provide to us and what that relationship really means and so we've gone from being very 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 specification focused to Obviously, still very specification focused, but really trying to make sure that we have relationships with the most important contractors and are really doing something for them where they perceive that it's that the reason that they should want to go go with Turnasol. I mean, we've had guys who are out in the marketplace, were used us a ton, went away, used another contractor or used another manufacturer for six months or a year, and then come back and say, enough. I want to use you guys again, just make sure I get the right price and make sure we're, because we do deliver. That's the thing that we will make sure of as a company is that we can deliver that product. So let's look at the building materials industry as a whole. How do you think that's going to be shifting in the next decade, the 2020s? Gosh, that's a great question. We still see is a lot is that there's still a fashion element to a lot of what we do. Mm. We're in the site furnishings business, right? Furniture, right? That's still benches and tables and things like that. So there's a certain degree of fashion. So what we've seen is that materials change, the materials that uh, architects use 
go in and out of popularity, the look that they're trying to drive. So we try and be sensitive to that clearly. But by having a number of different uh, manufacturing, vertical manufacturing components, we think that we can we can solve those problems for them typically. But I really think that the the future is in this offsite stuff. I mean, I you know, and I know probably because we're in the middle of it and I can see it and I've seen how our business has grown based upon that and why the contractors come to us and say, I'm not going to do this any other way from now on. I mean, we had the guys who built the, we were about the same price for bioretention planters made of lightweight concrete fabricated in our factory as the guy who was who was putting CMU walls in place. And so the contractor for the first phase of the project picked the local contractor building the CMU walls. And came to us for phase two and said, I will never do that again, ever. The guy was in their hair. He was trying to, you know, in their way, trying to figure these things out, had cost overruns. There was, there were problems with the project. He went with us with phase two and he says, nope, never again. You guys are in on every job that I do this on because it's so much easier to coordinate on site. It's so much less expensive when you don't have the union labor. And the and the and just the, the fundamental nature of a job site being what it is and trying to coordinate those contractors. I, I mean, I'm, it's a reason I'm glad I'm not a contractor, honestly, because hmm. it's a tough job. And I, and I respect those guys for what they do every day. From a branding perspective, what's one thing that you've learned over the last couple of years that you see as like the, the big current need right now that everyone should be making sure that they do? Well, if you're me, you need to hire a good director of marketing because for years I was the marketing guy and I thought we were doing just great. And then I hired a good director of marketing and she's been schooling me since I hired her. Um, I've, I've learned a ton about about brand. I've learned about what we need to be doing better, how we're approaching brand and that, you know, I sort of thought that brand just meant, you know, I was out of the industrial space way back when, and my history is place advertisements and go to trade shows and do all the same stuff that, you know, it's like this is, and the brand is made by the product and I'm learning. And, and honestly, that's, that's been, a, it's been uh, exciting for me. It's been interesting and it's been a real education to me learning about trying to really assert brand for ourselves and make sure that the specification community has a relationship, not just with the products that we manufacture, which can be manufactured by somebody else for 25% less or whatever, mm -hmm. but rather that they have that relationship with, with the brand as a company. They have, they, they're able to, they, they have that, that willingness to say, no, I really want to use Turnisol. And it's because I have the experience with them and that they think of us when they're looking at this. Uh, you know, and I think everybody talks about this today in the in this post COVID world that you know we used to have those salespeople that would go make ten calls a week in, in specifiers' offices. Well, now they're fighting for the same screen time as everybody else. And how do they reestablish their relationships? How do they reach out to these folks? How do they really go through that? And we've and we've worked through some strategies to do that. And but you know. And for us, uh, we haven't we didn't get start really working on our brand until late, and so we're I think we're continuing to build and continuing to work on that. We're always known as the reliable guys. We're always the guys that you can go with the high end of the market, but we want it to be more than that. We want people to really understand who we are. A lot of our market space is. You know, guys who are really serious about what they do. We're the high end guys. We're super fashionable. They're very, very serious about things. 
And we're not. We're the approachable guys. We're the guys that you can talk to. You can ask questions. You can bounce bounce ideas off of. And we don't take ourselves all that seriously. So it it kind of I think is a is that's going to be who we are and who the who people will approach and say you know they're the guys I like to deal with and that's who what we really hope about our brand is going forward. Well, and it's also important to point out that brands evolve and they're always <laughs> yes. learning. They're learning from customers. They're learning from markets. They're learning from economies. And it's it's no you can you can alter and evolve a brand uh, over time, and it's worth looking back on it every couple of years to make sure that your persona and your personality meets the needs of the markets and, and uh, that you're actually fulfilling your brand promises along the way too. And yeah. and that's what builds those solid engagements and relationships with the clients. Absolutely. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you were hoping to get out in this sort of conversation wrapped around like finding your, your niche in the seam and creating that differentiation for growth? I would have to say if there's one there's one thing it's just that that we can all realize we're in a really we're in a really great industry. What we do is is a really it's exciting to be part of. I I love it. I love being where I am and I'm lucky I found my way into it and I think anybody who's participating in this, you know, sometimes it's it's a, you get dirty and you work hard, but there's there's a lot of great things about being involved in the building building materials industry. Gets me excited to come to work every day, be be with part of my team and I think we're all pretty fortunate to be part of it. Yeah, that's why we got involved. There's always innovation. It's design related. There's yeah. down to earth people love having relationships and conversations like this. It's it is really great. Before we wrap up, why don't you tell people where they could find more about you and more about Turnasol too? Yeah, thank you. Again, it's Turnasol, which actually is the French word for sunflower. So so you say turn to the sun. It's T-O-U-R-N-E-S-O-L. And that's turnasol.com is our website. Uh, I am at Christopher Lyon on LinkedIn. And uh, we are at Turnasol SW uh, on LinkedIn and Facebook, um, all the typical places. It's been a real pleasure being here on your show. And it's been a lot of fun. I probably talk more than you wanted, but uh, it's it's, it's fun because I'm really passionate about what we do. No, this was great. Thanks. All right. Thank you. If you're interested in hearing more stories and strategic insights from industry experts, please subscribe to the Building Brands podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. If you've enjoyed this episode, please post a review and share with others who may be interested as well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.